and how the people can create a worker-centered world. All power to the people. And it is 6 o'clock. You are tuned to two listener-sponsored non-commercial WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live around the world at WBAI.org. Time now for City Watch with today's host, David Brand. Hello and welcome to City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. I'm glad you're with us today on 99.5 FM WBAI. I'm your host, David Brand, and we're joined by my co-host, Jeff Simmons, listening live, and news correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston. We have a big show today focused on the intersection of sports and social issues. We have Daily News sports columnist Bradford William Davis, Brooklyn Eagles sports writer J.T. Terenly, and Streets blog reporter and big-time Mets fan Dave Colon joining us today. Coming up in a moment, news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston will present the latest installment in her series, New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. But first, I wanted to take a moment to remember WNYC news anchor Richard Hake, who died Friday. Richard Hake worked at WNYC since 1993 and was a master of radio and the host of Morning Edition for the past several years. I listened to Richard almost every day, and I cherished his warm, steady, and commanding delivery as he presented the news and interviewed guests. For the past few months as a radio rookie hosting City Watch since late February gave me a whole new appreciation for Richard Hake. I listened even more closely in order to learn from him, and in this way, he was teaching a correspondence course in great radio. I will miss him, and so will New York City. Thank you, Richard. Now I'll pass it to Celeste Katz-Marston for the first segment of City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM. Take it away, Celeste. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. New York is the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic sweeping the planet. WBAI is collecting the stories of New Yorkers fighting their way through the storm. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's coronavirus diary. I'm John Oswald. I am a former newspaper editor who is disabled. I live in Manhattan. I am a double amputee who, beyond that challenge, started dialysis last fall. I cannot completely socially distance because I have to leave my home three days a week to go to a midtown Manhattan dialysis center where I'm sitting among 25 other patients. It's been a little crazy because every time we go to the center, they're instituting new protocols for how patients are being treated. Um, one of the things they've done is there are a lot of patients there who are fairly sick and their caregivers come with them. They have barred caregivers from sitting with patients inside the actual dialysis center room. That's a huge change, especially for people who are used to having their home attendants, their children, sit with them through the four-hour treatment. 
in addition to having to go to dialysis, I was also going out during this time several days a week to uh, a NYU rehab facility to learn how to walk. Uh, I, with, I would have my two prosthetic legs, and as this crisis was unfolding, was finally learning how to walk. All those sessions are now postponed through at least May. We are going to try uh, a telehealth uh, video session in which they will instruct me through my computer uh, with my physical therapist there on video how to put the legs on, how to safely stand up. I don't know how much walking will do because I'm still a little shaky, but it's essentially put on hold other recovery issues for me. I've been through so much that when this happened, <laughs> I joked, uh, I'm also visually impaired, I'm legally blind. Um, I, I, I joke, I, I, I'm fairly macabre about it. I'm blind, I have no kidneys, I have no legs, and now the plague is coming for me. It's like you can't possibly make up a story like this, that this is happening, that, that I am <laughs> sitting here fighting for my life. I literally have said to myself several times that if one more thing happens, that's it, I'm out. But another thing happened, and I took it, and I'm, um, I'm adjusting, and, you know, I don't want to die. I didn't think I could manage another stressor beyond the financial issues that also stress me out, but, um, you know, I'm doing the best I can. But one of the big positive things I've seen is in that I admire is the work of the nurses and and the social workers and the people who run these things of the dialysis centers. They are working under unbelievable circumstances and we still have to keep showing up. We cannot stop our dialysis. We have to have it three times a week or we die. The work of healthcare professionals is I mean, it's really tremendous, and I, as a lot of us are, salute the nurses who essentially keep me alive. John Oswald lives in Manhattan. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. Thank you, Celeste. That's right. We love sports. And today we are focusing on the intersection of sports and social issues here in New York City. And there are few people can better talk about that than Daily News sports columnist Bradford William Davis. Bradford joined the Daily News team about a year ago, and he not only writes great game-related stories, he takes a look at what's going on off the field as well. For example, he recently wrote about how Major League Baseball can better honor the legacy of Jackie Robinson. He spoke with me about that specific column and about how athletes, teams, and leagues around the country are serving or in many cases not serving their communities during the coronavirus crisis. Here's that interview. 
Daily News sports columnist Bradford William Davis. Thank you for joining City Watch. Yeah, thank you for having me. So what's it like writing about sports at a time when there's no leagues, at least in the United States, going on right now? <laughs> what a question. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's so many things, David. It's, it's horrifying. It's like, oh, God, what am I going to come up with? Mm. Maybe nothing. <laughs> um, but at the same time, when I can put my anxiety about, like, the state of the world at bay, mm. um, it's offered me a lot of creative freedom and something I really appreciate in, in a job, you know? Um, like, in a way, like, not having to do things like game stories and analysis on, like, you know, who's doing well, why they're doing well, et cetera, yeah. like, gives you a lot more, like, time to really think on a higher concept level about what you're covering. A lot less, um, cliche, yeah. a lot less cliches, I guess, coming from uh, some of these post-game pressers and stuff. You don't have to worry about right. trying to get Pete Alonso's latest banal statement into a story. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, you know, um, and Alonso's actually, you know, he's he's pretty fortified, which is actually pretty, you know, yeah. nice. Yeah, he's a bad, bad <laughs> example. Maybe no uh, the honest. Do you, do you remember when he said uh, after he hit his uh, home run, his uh, record-breaking home run, he said, uh, do you know what I, what I told my mom or whatever? I said, O.S. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is it okay to curse? And he didn't even say the curse word. He just said S, <laughs> uh, which would make it even better. But, yeah, no, uh, I, I, so I, I've been able to think at a high level on some of the stuff, I, I, I hope anyway, and, uh, and produce some things that, that I'm fortunately pretty proud of because um, I'm getting time to report, to talk to people, to, you know, again, just really, really – uh, interrogate and investigate and just do the work rather than just turn out things for, you know, inches. Well, you recently had a really great piece on the anniversary of Jackie Robinson's first game in 1947, and you wrote about how Major League Baseball needs to honor Jackie Robinson's legacy by doing more than just sticking a number 42 on players' back. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that Major League Baseball does, but there's so much more that could be done. I mean, the you know, the, the 42 on the back is... Um, a rhetorical point because you know there are you know they they donate some money to good to good causes you know Jack Robinson said they had a little you know they had a, web, a website launched where you can like just learn more about him hmm. um, but uh, the you know the spirit of the piece was about Jackie Robinson's particular concern for um, the poor and working you know poor and working Americans especially those of color but you know but just in general mm-hmm. um, something that's reflected a, a lot throughout his life, particularly towards the end of his career and, and, um, and retirement. Um, and, uh, and what I hope to do was juxtapose that with some recent mistreatment Major League Baseball um, mm. has done towards their own workforce, particularly those of stadium employees who are seasonal workers, hourly, you know, no one's, you know, balling out, selling hot dogs mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, or drinks at a game. And, uh, and these people are, you know, are indefinitely without any sort of income whatsoever. Um, and, uh, and the league, you know, committed uh, money towards these people, mm-hmm. yet yet from every, you know, stone I've turned, uh, nobody's actually gotten any money yet. Um, and we're already, like, into, you know, the middle of April, and, you know, three so, or so weeks into the, into the schedule season. And, you know, that's it's a horrible time to, to not have any money during a global pandemic, so... Well, and it's people who they wait, stadium employees who don't, might not have a job or might not have a consistent job 
throughout the rest of the year. And so this is where they need to earn a lot of their income, I think. And you had written in your piece, you said those seasonal and hourly employees are dependent on the income. And MLB would like you to believe they resolved that when its franchises committed $1 million each and $30 million in total to, quote, ballpark workers back in March. But the vast majority of those workers have yet to receive a single dollar. Instead, they've been asked to apply for hardship grants. Grants numerous workers at Yankee Stadium and City Field have told the Daily News have yet to have been paid out. So what what are you hearing when you're talking with people, if you're talking with workers or talking with the teams? Well, the teams have, have uh, not provided comment. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, but you know, among the the workers, you know, they uh, you know, it, it's one of immense frustration. You know, um, one thing to understand is that like these workers really identify with the teams or the stadiums they work in. You know, mm. they, become, they become fans of the team. You know, yeah. Like the people who, who serve the hot dogs, you know, are not maintaining their like I don't know Red Sox fandom or something like that. For the, by and large, you know, they yeah. they you know they they end up being like you know really embracing. Uh, all that is of being a fan, and even of being the biggest hype man. So, like, yeah. they're real. They're real believers in their company, in their in their employer. Oh. And so, you know, and so that to go this long without, um, without an income, uh, and to uh, you know, and then to be asked to apply for hardship grants, um, which is kind of how that money that that money that we both referenced at one million dollars each per team, um, is has generally been you know um, allocated. Um, things that, you know, uh, grants where you have to submit an application, where you have to, you know, prove that you are experiencing sort of hardship. Of course you're experiencing hardship. You have no income. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the Mets are particularly egregious because uh, they cap their, their grants at $1,000 per person. Yeah. Even as the application, you can go on, you know, the Mets COVID-19 <laughs> um, grant application. Um and uh, you'll see, like, there's a line item for, you know, where you can uh, list your, um, you know, funeral expenses, <laughs> and, as well as, like, you know, living expenses. Like, who who has a rent in Queens that is less than $1,000? Who's ever paid for a funeral <laughs> in the past, like, 30 years that is less than, you know, that is less than $1,000? Like, how callous can you be? I'm a huge Mets fan, and I think a lot that bothers a lot of sports fans. And sometimes we have to compartmentalize our sports fandom and our fandom for these teams with just how awful they act and how awful they treat their employees. So, what what do you think we should be expecting from the Mets organization at a, at a minimum when it comes to supporting their workers? Well, you know, and this is the without getting too much into the weeds. One of the other problems with the, with the way a lot of these teams to treat their workforces is that their subcontracted workers have been mm. sort of second class, you know, uh, citizens and all this. Yeah. A lot, you know, a lot of people who sell you hot dogs and, and beer or whatever tend to be subcontracted. So they're not, again, a direct employee of, you know, the organization. Yeah. A technicality that, you know, um, <laughs> that, that, that a lot of teams have used to not provide grants to or, or have them sort you know, sort of waiting in line, the Mets explicitly, yeah. um, ask, uh, subcontracted workers to, um, uh, you know, to to wait to, to not apply, but to wait for the remains of whatever is left from yeah. you know their direct employee grants. But one of the things I, I bring up the subcontract dynamic because it, over in uh, in the NBA, which is by, by by the way not been perfect on this either, quite quite infamously. Um, but over at least at Barclays Center, um, subcontracted workers there um, have been able to get paid based off of the uh, canceled schedule. So, like, you know, they're, they're able to, 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 to uh, essentially submit, you know, uh, their hours <laughs> and uh, – or their expected hours. 
and get paid based off of that. And that at least gives you something approximate, you know, for at least, I guess, non-tip employees, you know, yeah. um, that, uh, to, to what you'd expect to be making, you know, um, during a normal season, you know, uh, without a horrible, you know, public health crisis. I, so like, I mean, that, that, that would be a, a, a bare minimum for, um, you know, for these big league teams when 29 out of the 30 are worth at least a billion dollars, yeah. you know, um, when, you know, the MLB, I think is, is pushing 11 billion in uh, total revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, last last year, like that's their basic things that could be done and uh, would at least maintain the status quo, which is not great, but at least is you know decent and fair. And I imagine that they would have the teams would have a lot of leverage over the, the companies that are contracting with them. So if like Aramark is providing uh, vendor services. The team can probably pressure a company like that to pay their employees' wages, right? Well, <laughs> I don't think that's what's happening. Um, yeah. and, and I should also say with the subcontract work, subcontract workers, the teams are not solely culpable over all this. You know, Aramark is also a billion-dollar company. Yep. Um, you know, uh, they. Um, I don't have the data in front of me, but they, you know, but they, but they cleared many billions <laughs> in revenue last year. They're publicly traded. They have uh, in recent, you know, uh, months even. Uh, announced stock buyback plans. Um, they had the capital yeah. <laughs> in mid or late 20, 2019 to provide some sort of, you know, um, direct support, you know, um, to to their workers. And uh, you know, they're they they are, but they are choosing not to. They are, they are pointing towards these grants that may or may not be even <laughs> that, their, that their workers may or may not even be eligible to, you know, for based on whatever the team's policy is. So big surprise, they're letting down their fans, they're letting down their employees, but are there any particular teams or leagues or athletes who are stepping up to support people in need right now, and not just because they know it's going to get them some positive attention? Because uh, I think a lot of teams are doing things like sending a press release about, we donated you know, a couple hundred masks to a hospital, and that's nice, but I think maybe the main motivator is to get a little positive press. Is there anyone who's doing yeah. real committed work? Again, billion dollar entities, so you know, <laughs> you always have to take any sort of uh, good deed with a, with a grain of salt. But yeah. um, again, I think the Nets, you know, worked out a fair arrangement with Brooke, their with their workers, you know, Brooklyn um, Nets, Barclays, Brooklyn Nets. Um, by by just paying them based off of the uh, the the lost hours, yeah, expected lost hours. Um, but uh, you know, I think uh, among players. Uh, the first person that comes to mind is honestly Zion Williamson, mm. um, the you know superstar rookie over in uh, New Orleans. Yeah. Um, but before he actually went out and donated and began, uh, you know, committing publicly committing money to uh, arena workers over at the uh, hilarious, still hilarious <laughs> Smoothie King Center. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, before you know his owner did, so he was willing to, to help out his. Effectively, his coworkers yeah. <laughs> before his boss did. Um, now, of course, again, Zion is, is is rich because he's a NBA player and he's a superstar. You know, who's already racking up tons of endorsement deals. But um, but he's on the relatively speaking the lower end of the pay scale as a as a rookie, hmm. um, and he's also a teenager. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so I, I you know um, I, I'm not in his head or his heart. I don't know his camp or his family. I've never met them, but I um, appreciate. Apologize. I uh, appreciate that um, he's been uh, at least willing to be, you know, be uh, so generous with what he has at least currently. Is there anybody closer to home here? Anybody in New York, New Jersey? 
who you, who's caught your eye in terms of the work they've done or some of the commitments that they've made? New York and Jersey. I mean, uh, I, I think, uh, Garrett Cole did donate some money, um, recently, New York. um, either, either, either money or services. I, so I do appreciate that, you know, um, yeah. Like, uh, I, I couldn't, you know, I honestly couldn't cite, you know, um, extensively, yeah. you know, what players have, but, um, but it does appear that at least, you know, generally speaking, you know, individuals, um, have been, uh, have been willing to do more, you know, I, oh, you know, Stephen Matz also, uh, okay. contributed recently to, um, I, I believe it was a food bank, but I, could, I again, I could be mistaken. I don't have it in front of me, you know, so um, Mets, I do appreciate Mets pitcher that. Stephen Matz from Long Island and you have new Yankee Garrett Cole trying to ingratiate himself with his new town here, I guess. Yeah, I want to shift a little bit and just talk to you about some of your recommendations for how sports fans or maybe aspiring sports fans can ex- can spend the foreseeable future uh, without active leagues. I guess unless you're going to watch soccer in Belarus, the only soccer league playing in the world right now, or there's a the Taiwanese baseball league. I think is 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 going on right now. If you want to get your your baseball fixed, but yeah, just wake up at six thirty in the morning. <laughs> you got all you want. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But tell us, are there any documentaries that you're watching, any sports movies or classic games that you've watched, or just, you know, are you watching esports? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I guess who's uh, who's not watching The Last Dance, right? I yeah. mean, uh, that's that's the uh, the big the biggest event. You know, I, I heard actually it had the highest rating um, from a for ESPN documentary ever. Um, like clearing um the you don't know Bo Vermeer yeah, about Bo Jackson yeah. by millions. I just read that somewhere today. Huh. Um, but uh, yeah, the last dance has been it's been yeah, been cool. You know, I, I have my uh, I have my, my my critiques, but I, I do you know I think think Jordan's uh, life in that team is worth you know a deep dive and excavation, especially for all of the uh, younger millennials like myself, or you know millennials or you know or Z's whatever. I don't know. I sound like a boomer, right? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know those who didn't get to actually, you know, witness how good he was. Um, and then, um, but like, you know, the best film, sports film that I can think of right now that that people have not seen. It's people like so, you know, not in like the Rocky, you know, family. Let's say, yeah, yeah. is uh, is two thousand and nine's Sugar. I love that movie. Um, oh, dude, bro. Uh, I would say it's, uh, it's Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden. Is that right? Um, the, the directors, they, they actually directed Captain Marvel, the, mm. you know, the Marvel film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful, um, honest depiction of not just the journey of a, a young Dominican baseball player, of which, you know, many, you know, many, many uh, Dominicans play Major League Baseball or, or, or work or find their way into minors as, as this fictional story told, but very real, very realistic fictional story. But it's also, a, you know, a, a, a you know an incredible story of like the, the uh, immigrant experience, you know, of what it costs you to uh, to hope to assimilate um, to life in life in the states, and whether that and, and ask good, big questions about what, whether that um, whether that experience is worth it. It has a cool little slice of New York City in it too. Like, not to give out any spoilers about what happens in the movie but part of it takes oh, place in new york and it's it's actually bro, pretty bro, beautiful it's, it's around the corner from my apartment like <laughs> that, awesome. uh, the hotel yeah <laughs> without spoiling awesome. anything um <laughs> is you know i walk past it almost every day when i go to subway cool uh back when back when i went on subways back when it was safe to do so you know so everyone stay inside <laughs> do you have a, a favorite sports book that you would recommend man 
I need to read more sports books, to be honest, to be perfectly honest with you. But um, I'll tell you one. My, I'll tell you my favorite ever um, backer call right now is probably the Bad Guys one. It's uh, Jeff Perlman's um, oh, yeah. tome on the 1980s Mets. So you must be um, a Met. Are you a Mets fan? You know, I, I grew up, actually, I grew up in Queens, but I grew up rooting for the Yankees. Okay. Um, I was uh, I was in elementary school during the Subway Series. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Oh. Um, as a uh, it was, it was, we still, I think we still outnumbered Mets fans <laughs> at the lunch table anyway. I don't, um, you're giving me PTSD right now. I was oh, in sorry, middle dude. school um, and I grew up in New Jersey and every single one of my classmates was a Yankees fan. My dad right. was a Yankees fan. My grandpas were Yankees fans. And so I what had the hell to, happened to you? I guess that was my way of rebelling. It wasn't, you know, back then it wasn't alcohol or drugs or anything. I was going to be a Mets fan. Now I run Queens Only Daily paper. So I think it was in the, it was in, in the stars for me, but yeah. That was on my list, and I love that one because the Mets win, and so yes. I really get to see that. But it, but, it, but it does a great job of like of examining not just the personalities, but also the the um, tremendous flaws and failures off you know off the field that both enabled their success, but probably led to their very rapid downfall. Um, so it's it's a really classic, in, you know, in the genre. The other book that I'm reading right now that I could not recommend more. I'm almost finished with it. Is uh, Stealing Home from uh, Eric Nussbaum. Um, have you heard of that, Dave? No, talk talk more about that. Yeah, so Stealing Home. It's about um, it's about the migration of or the the built the uh, the creation of Dodger Stadium, um, mm-hmm. over in L.A. Um, and uh, all of the corruption and racism and you know uh. Red scare ism yeah. <laughs> that uh, had that, that needed to happen to facilitate this uh, giant plot of land being marked for a stadium instead of like say decent housing. Yeah, and uh, it, it's you know it, it is a sports story, but it is uh, it's so much more than that. Honestly, you know, um, I it, it's the kind of writing I hope to do one day where it's just you know sort of lyrical retelling of like of, of people and how you know sports can shade the entire course of their lives, whether they want to, wanted to or not. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a big fan of, uh, of stealing home. Like I said, I'm, I'm almost done, but I'm, I'm far enough in to say that it's absolutely worth your read. And, and how can we find out, or how can we follow your work? What's, what's your, uh, Twitter handle? Do you have a Facebook page? How can we stay up to date on what you're writing? Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, like I have a, uh, I have the worst Twitter handle ever, but it's at underscore B Willie because my, you know, my whole name is Brad William Davis. So, uh, I my apologies for, um, you know, probably throwing you off the trail <laughs> by reciting that. But yeah, but yeah, if you, if you search my name, Bradford William Davis or at underscore B E Willie on Twitter, you'll find me. I also occasionally post my stuff to my Instagram page. Um, same, same handle. And I guess I am on Facebook as well. If you just, you know, get search my byline, um, where, you know, I'll post some of the more significant stories that I write. So, um, so yeah, man, that's, you know, I'm, I'm around posting, uh, incessantly. Well, awesome. We're really happy to have you on the show today. Bradford, William Davis, columnist for the Daily News. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you, David. With the first pick in the 2020 WNBA draft, the New York Liberty select Sabrina Ionescu from the University of Oregon. History has become her story as we watch Sabrina Ionescu dominate college basketball for yet another season. She is the undisputed triple-double queen. And now the undisputed triple-double queen is coming to Brooklyn. 
The Liberty drafted Serena Unescu with the first overall pick in the WNBA draft last week. She's considered a once-in-a-generation talent. She's going to be a big deal here in New York City, whether you follow sports or not. Prepare to see her on billboards and commercials and getting a lot of crossover attention. I caught up with the great Brooklyn Eagles sports writer JT Terenly to talk about Unescu's potential, the moment that the impact of the coronavirus hit home for a lot of people, particularly NBA fans here in New York City, and I got his book and movie recommendations. Here's that interview. Brooklyn Eagles sports columnist JT Terenly, welcome to City Watch. Hey, David. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you on. So, been wondering, how has the coronavirus affected your work? You're still churning out a lot of copy every day and a lot of great stuff. But what does a sports writer write about when there are no sports going on? Well, to be honest with you, um, Obviously, when all this happened and sports first started shutting down right around March 10th, March 11th, I think the NBA was at the forefront of that. And obviously, my coverage area, the Brooklyn Nets, are probably, you know, the biggest thing going. Um, We just basically realized very quickly that all the coverage would be about the COVID-19 outbreak itself, whether it relates to sports, whether it relates to business, whether it relates to politics, the courts that are right across the street from our offices. So uh, I had a story within basically a few days where uh, we had four Nets test positive from COVID-19, most notably Kevin Durant, who's, you know, arguably the best or the uh, maybe in the top three NBA players going right now. So that provided us with a huge story. And um, basically after that, everything that we've been covering has been, somewhat related to COVID-19, whether it's the shutting down of a season, the end of somebody's career. We have to think of some of these college kids that play at St. Francis College and LIU. Some of them were in their senior years, and all of a sudden in March, right when they were getting ready to maybe compete in tournaments. I'm from New Jersey originally, and so I think of Miles Powell and Seton Hall, but also Rutgers, which was about to go to the NCAA tournament for the first time in almost 30 years. And then the season just ends, so they still have that kind of drought. Yeah, unbelievable. And I think in the first few days, before everybody really wrapped their mind around what type of outbreak and pandemic this was going to be locally, at least, in our tri-state area, I think people were somewhat bummed out by it. But that quickly turned into, you know, what can we, you know, really do about something as on, on the big scale, insignificant as sports, when obviously we have a public health crisis. So I, I thought those were kind of interesting times when, when people were still adapting to the fact that, oh, what do you mean? Spring training's called off? Well, what about yeah. opening day? I have tickets and now all of a sudden yeah. you're, you know, you're locked in your house and, uh, yeah. you know, worried about getting the right type of mask and, uh, trying to go out and find hand sanitizer. All of a sudden our, our priorities, I think, changed on a scale. Like it feels like, a lifetime ago when you mentioned that I, I did have tickets to opening day at City Field and now that is like the farthest thing from my mind. But you you know, going back to what you were saying about the Brooklyn Nets, that was again seems like so long ago, but it was really like a month and a half ago. But for a lot of people, those were the kinds of things that made it really hit home. You had the Nets, some of the Nets testing positive, including K D. You had Tom Hanks down in Australia. You had at first uh, some of the players with the Jazz. And why do you think that made it really hit home for a lot of people, the the impact of this illness? Well, I, I, I think one thing is um, whether we like to admit it to ourselves or not, when we look, when we look at the um, sporting world, we kind of see those people 
in a way, whether whether we're admitting it to ourselves or not, it's some kind of, almost like deities. Like, how could, you know, Kevin Durant get coronavirus? How could uh, Rudy Gobert uh, get coronavirus? And then, you, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it made people uh, really kind of stand up straight and think that this is something that could affect me as well, you know, directly. Yeah. And uh, whenever you have uh, famous people, like you mentioned, Tom Hanks, all of a sudden, you know, those are people that we often think are invulnerable to these things, whether that's logical or not. And now all of a sudden, you know, you find out, God forbid, that your next door neighbor knows someone who uh, is in the hospital. And, uh, you know, there are so many really sad stories out there. But that was kind of a tipping point of people starting to get the fact that this you know, it could strike anyone at any time. So there has been, you know, even amid all of this shutdown in, in game action, there has been sports news happening. And you have Tom Brady going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Rob Gronkowski coming out of retirement to reunite. The NFL draft was Thursday night. But we also have a, a really big piece of local news, and that's related to the New York Liberty, who now have a new owner, a new home court, and a new star in Sabrina Ionescu. Could you talk about... What makes her so special and what her impact could be? Well, um, uh, one thing a lot of people didn't realize was that uh, Joseph Tsai, the uh, owner of the uh, Brooklyn Nets, actually purchased the Liberty first. And that was kind of his first foray into um, NBA-related activities. Oh. Uh, he had always coveted uh, owning an NBA team, and that was the first step towards that. As far as, uh, you know, the, the WNBA draft was the first of its kind. I know we've just had the uh, NFL draft this weekend, but th this was the first virtual draft we had. And the fact that the Liberty had the first overall pick and won the draft lottery enabled them to get a player that could be potentially transformational, not only to their trans, uh, not only to their franchise, but to, to uh, women's professional basketball as a whole. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating thing because here's a, here's a young lady who, uh, Romanian immigrant parents grew up in Walnut Creek, California, kind of playing in her backyard dreaming about all this. And, uh, you know, she actually made it real. And then the night that she's going to be drafted first overall, she has to sit on the couch with her parents and, you know, can't go anywhere. So it's kind of fascinating because we're used to watching these drafts where the first overall pick is someone that's, you know, gets the royal treatment, the red carpet up there to shake the commissioner's hand and hold the jersey up. So it was kind of an interesting experience for her. She talked about that at length. But at the same time, it, it wound up being something very special to her as well because she is very close with her parents, obviously. And, and so it was nice in a way that she got to share it with them exclusively. And what makes her such a special player? Like, why is she going to be a, potentially be a transformative player? Well, I, I think that's a lot to put on someone's shoulders because I think the young lady would tell you herself, you know, you have to prove yourself at each level, be it high school, college, and the pros. And now this is an, uh, another jump for her. But the way she plays, the fact that she amassed, I think, an NCAA record, 26 triple-doubles during her career, which is very rare from that point guard position in women's basketball because you need to get those 10 rebounds mm -hmm. uh, more so than those assists and those points. It's, it's you know, she really is a very special player and someone that moves in a way and plays in a way that maybe a lot of young girls and even, you know, young men playing basketball haven't seen. And she just has a real vibrancy and an energy. And I'm sure that's why Nike threw, you know, a shoe contract her way. 
Uh, it didn't hurt that she, you know, played at Oregon, which is uh, Nike Central. If you yeah. if you go all the way back to you know the roots of Nike, but you know, I I think it'll be proven on the court whether she can take the WNBA to another level. That's something that probably hasn't happened yet. So I think it's a lot to put on someone's shoulders to say that they're suddenly going to make a sport more popular in America than it has been in the past. But if someone could. I think she's in position to at least make some progress in that respect. How have you been filling your time now that sports leagues are suspended? What are you, what are you doing in those extra several hours a week you have back? Well, other than making sure that I get uh, some exercise, you know, going out, maybe taking yeah. the bike out or taking a long walk. Um, I'm a big movie guy, so I watch a lot of films, you know, and uh, I'm sure I'm not much different than anyone else who, uh, you know, binge watches programs or tries to find something to pass the time. And, you know, I'm a reader as well, so I try to read books. And, you know, I'm doing what anybody else is trying to do. You know, one thing also about how the coronavirus affected sports locally in in our area was that um, the New York Islanders playing at Barclays Center. And they've been there since 2015, and they basically had – two more games scheduled in March, the last of which I think was going to be March 22nd, which was going to be the final game played in Brooklyn because the franchise has already um, decided that they would uh, play all of their regular season and playoff games in Uniondale, you know, at the old Coliseum, the renovated Nassau Coliseum until their new arena in Belmont was ready for the 21-22 season. Yeah, and and so those games just went by the wayside. So I think March third, actually, a six-two loss to Montreal turned out to be the last game of the Brooklyn era. So they kind of went out <laughs> with a whimper, and now nobody, you know, that's not on anybody's uh, radar. That a team that, you know, Charles Charles Wong, the, the former owner, basically saved the franchise, uh, saved them in respect to keeping them in New York or the tri-state area by moving them into Barclays Center, yeah. even though it was an ill fit. And a lot, and a lot of people spent a lot of time over those five, six years saying it was an ill fit. It's the only way that they managed to stay within the tri-state area because, you know, there was talk about the franchise moving even to Canada. So, so I guess if you were one of the few dozen fans at Barclays Center on uh, March third to see the six-two loss, you you were actually in a historic moment, possibly the last professional hockey game in Brooklyn. But why why were they not a good fit? I mean, I think that's really interesting perspective that they, they had the lowest attendance in the league, but without that move, they might not have stayed in the area at all, and that paved the way for the new Belmont uh, arena they're going to get out there in Nassau County by Belmont Park and playing at the Coliseum again. But w- what was the problem in Brooklyn? Well, it started very early with the fact that uh... – when Barclays Center was first designed, um, legendary architect Frank Gehry designed a really, uh, you know, state-of-the-art uh, design for both basketball and potentially hockey. And, they, and that original design had the right kind of pipes to keep under a potential ice surface to keep that surface cool enough, you know, to play a three-period hockey game. What happened was that design kind of got uh, cut down. And, and they went with another design, and, and the, the pipes underneath the Barclays were plastic pipes. And mm. as much as they tried, it really affected ice conditions. So the first complaints I actually heard about the Barclays Center came from the players themselves about the oh, ice huh. conditions. Uh. Then it became sight lines. Then it became the fact that there's one portion of the ice 
where there is no seating. You know, it's kind of an open area. Yeah. So basically, in the end, they designed the arena basically for concerts, the nets, boxing, and uh, other things like that, but not necessarily for, uh, you know, NHL regular season games. So so in that regard, it, it was an ill fit. That's interesting. Well, yeah. JT, we have a few more moments left, and you mentioned you are a big movie fan and uh, an avid reader. So I was wondering, do you have any recommendations for sports fans in isolation about some some sports movies you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan of, uh, you know, especially people are hungering for baseball. I know now a lot of times MLB Network will show um, Field of Dreams, mm. The Natural, films such as that that really kind of capture the essence of, uh, the meaning of a sport to people, what it means to, not necessarily on a team-by-team basis or, you know, as a as a fan of a particular team, but just what baseball means to you in general. So, I, you know, I, I've really relished uh, watching those kind of films. Do you, have a, do you have a personal favorite or maybe a handful of favorites? Uh, you know, as a, as a kid, I always liked Pride of the Yankees, the, the Luke Eric film uh, yeah. with Ther- uh, Teresa Wright and... Um, Gary Cooper. I always thought that was kind of a touching film. Not so much uh, that it was about baseball. And, and Babe Ruth actually has a cameo in that film. But I thought it was a very touching film. And, uh, I, you know, I always enjoyed watching that as a kid. It's a throwback. Yeah, well, Turner Classic Movies will definitely, you know, show it at some point. And also you could probably find it on demand, on TCM On Demand. That, that that tends to come into the rotation every once in a while. And it's it's a film that a lot of people uh, really cherish because what you find when you go back into the, uh, you know, that far back into the into the film canon is that a lot of the sports films have a, have a sense of hokiness to them. And yeah. I'm not saying that's not a part of Pride of the Yankees, but, you know, the drama of Lou Gehrig and then obviously his deteriorating health and his love affair with his wife, you know, it, it really plays as you know, really interesting cinema, even though it's, you know, wrapped around a baseball player in a franchise. Do you have any sports books that you'd recommend? You know, I, I'm looking at my shelf here, and uh, actually, I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of times people, uh, when they go, go to look for sports books, um, tend to stick to the sports that they're more familiar with or have always, or have, or have always watched. But, you know, I liked... Um, John Feinstein's A Good Walk Spoiled. Mm. I don't know if anyone's ever read that, and I'm not a big golf guy, but, you know, I found it quite fascinating just to be on the tour with these guys and go through the various majors and, you know, all the kind of little pressures that go along with doing it. I I had never really looked at golf like that before I read that book. You know, I I think it's just fascinating. And John Feinstein's written a bunch of really interesting books, um, I believe The Punch was one of them, and a lot of people don't know this, but back when the NBA was a lot more rough and tumble than it is now, uh, there was a famous incident with uh, Kermit Alexander and um, former Rockets coach Rudy Tomjanovich, where teams back then actually had enforcers on the team, much in the the way they do in hockey, and you know, um, Kermit Alexander punched Kermit, Wash- Kermit Washington, right? Kermit Washington. I apologize. Uh, you know, that basically, uh, 
really changed the landscape of the NBA and having, you know, players protected more on the court and uh, issuing fines and suspensions in relation to players getting rough with one another, which we saw culminate itself in the 90s with the Knicks when they had their benches clear and brawl. Jeff Angani hanging on to Alonzo Mourning's leg or something. Uh, Oh, that that punch almost killed Rudy Tomjanovich, right? Oh, yeah, he wound up in the hospital and his brain was swollen and they had to, uh, you know, basically... uh, do everything they could just to keep him alive. And that wasn't, uh, you know, thought of at the time as, you know, a crazy occurrence in the NBA that a brawl would break out and somebody would get punched in the face. But, you know, everybody looked at it a little bit differently after that. Well, JT, thank you for joining us on City Watch. Thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, David Brand, coming to you live from the home studio, a.k.a. my living room. I'm training hosting duties the past few weeks with my co-host, Jeff Simmons. And as you heard earlier, our City Watch news correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, has been contributing a great series, talking with people who are affected by the coronavirus in New York City. You can listen to the entire series on our website, WBAI.org. The Wiz kids and want it, Bobby Thompson and done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. The rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn, so down on the corner. As you've been hearing, we're mixing it up a bit this week, focusing on an aspect of New York City that is important to so many of us, but it's missing right now, and that's sports. Our next guest is a big sports fan, and he's also a talented journalist who writes about transportation for Streets Blog New York. Reporter Dave Colon writes for Streets Blog where he challenges a car-centric perspective among many of our policymakers and fellow New Yorkers. Streets Blog connects people to information about how to reduce dependence on private automobiles and improve conditions for walking, biking, and transit. Right now, a lot of New Yorkers, especially healthcare workers, depend on bikes to get around since it can be hard to practice social distancing in the subways and buses. But at the same time, drivers are treating some of our roads like drag strips. A few viral videos and photos have captured really dangerous driving in New York City. For example, there's a video of one guy flying up 6th Avenue in a million-dollar sports car before he crashed into a line of parked cars and then sped off. Another photo showed a car that had gone up and over the back of another vehicle after plowing into it. The photo of that car mounting another car prompted some funny tabloid headlines. Cycling is a necessary mode of transportation for a lot of us, and it's also a sport. So I wanted to talk with Dave about just how safe it is and how the city can make it even safer. Dave and I also talked about our favorite ball club, the New York Mets, and the potential new owners, none other than J-Lo and A-Rod. And he also gave his book and movie recommendations. Here's that interview. Streets blog reporter and big-time Mets fan Dave Colon, welcome to City Watch. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dave. Great to be here. Talk to us about what's going on right now with bike safety in New York City. Um, what's going on on uh, biking in New York City? I mean, at a kind of pivotal moment where people are understanding how useful it can be as a way to get around uh, in in a time when the, the train and the bus are unfortunately too packed to keep people safe in a time when you're trying to, uh, say, stay six feet away from people if you are indoors. Um, and it's not to say people should give up on the train or bus. It's that, you know, we've I've spoke to a, a doctor uh, who started riding her bike, and she told me 
I ride my bike because I don't want to be on a train or a bus and potentially expose other people to coronavirus after I've spent all day in a hospital treating people. Um, and so as people are realizing this is a great way to get around, um, and there are fewer cars on the road, even though the ones that are on the road are being driven by people who are speeding, it's... So I saw I saw this video recently of a guy who got arrested for drag racing up Sixth Avenue, and it turns out it's a guy I went to college with, and he had like thousand dollar car when we were like sophomores in college, and now he's got like a million dollar Bugatti or something, and he crashed into a line of cars. You knew that guy? Uh, yeah, we I didn't know him, but I knew of him because he had a car that you would recognize on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. So yeah, he's a, a, a car influencer, I guess, but. Yeah, I think you're seeing some of those videos lately, like uh, the photo of the two cars humping on, like, 23rd Street. <laughs> yes. However that happened, you're you're seeing – I mean, I'm sure people can – you can hear it outside my window. I hear it every single day outside my apartment at night. People are just tearing ass down the street, <laughs> and it's extremely uncomfortable because I keep thinking that I'm going to hear, you know – peeling out, followed by somebody slamming on their brakes and then like a, you know, twisted metal sounds. Um, And and purely just on a data uh, side, the NYPD said today in front of the city council that they're giving out speeding tickets. The highway division is doing that. Red light cameras are somehow still catching more people than they were back when they're speeding than they were when we had, you know, a normal amount of traffic on the road, which, like, doesn't add up, except that it's almost, you know, there's a huge amount of people who are on the road now are driving as fast as they can. So what is what does the city need to do to protect bikers? And you had a you had a tweet earlier. They said while everyone was paying attention to the city council hearing, the mayor went on the radio and defined Vision Zero, and Vision Zero is the city's plan for street safety, as we have to be careful to make sure that we don't put people in a situation where they think they are safe from cars and trucks and they turn out not to be. So it's very strange. Six years into this administration that a guy who ran for mayor talking about Vision Zero is now telling us that's what he thinks it is. Vision Zero wasn't invented in New York. Vision Zero was, you know, a Swedish uh, Traffic philosophy, if I have that right, and the you know there's is the idea of vision zero, which is very literally you want to have zero traffic fatalities of all kinds. It's not just cyclists and or even pedestrians. It's motorists too, because all this street safety stuff does make motorists safer also. But the idea of vision zero is you get to zero traffic fatalities by uh, redesigning your roads to kind of keep uh, some, you know, human error out of the equation and, uh, you know, changing the culture in that way so that you can't have these hugely wide open roads for people to speed on uh, and then for people to drive really recklessly on and give them room to make a ton of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say mistake because if you're driving 30, 35 miles an hour on a residential road or even, you know, uh, on a a road outside my apartment, people are around you. It's not a, it's not a highway. Mm-hmm. So if you're driving at a speed that can kill somebody and you, uh, you know, don't pay attention 
for even, you know, a second or two, and you hit somebody, and you kill or injure them, and you say, oh, geez, it was an accident, you know, that you don't, you don't get up the hook that way. So Vision Zero is supposed to be able to prevent people from uh, driving like that through education, but also through road design, uh, through attempts to, you know, make it uh, easier for there to be uh, as transit, buses, trains, just getting more cars off the road. So for the mayor to say, you know, the lesson of Vision Zero is don't give people a false sense of security is, uh, it would be troubling if it weren't for the fact that it's come in the uh, context of, you know, a week, more than a week, a month of him saying it's completely impossible for us to do any kind of open streets program and that cities around the world have done. So how many streets has the city actually opened up for pedestrians? When they did it in uh, in March, there was, I think it was a total of like 1.4 miles, 1.6 miles or something in four boroughs. Staten Island was excluded uh, for whatever reason. Um, and it was in uh, Park Avenue. It was along uh, the Grand Concourse in the Bronx, and Park Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, it was on Johnson Avenue in, uh, in Bushwick. And it was in Queens. I think it was Jackson, Jackson Heights near yeah. my near my co my co host Jeff Simmons' house. He he yeah. took her about there, and uh, it, those those streets didn't stay open long, right? No, they didn't. It was a very underwhelming program for a lot of reasons. Uh, the biggest one being that the mayor had insisted that what you need at every single intersection were three to four to six cops standing there next to barricades. Mm. And there are a number of reasons why that isn't a bad idea. Um, one of them is obviously uh, the NYPD doesn't have the most uh, welcoming or great uh, relationship uh, with communities of color in New York City. Uh, they also don't have a great relationship with, uh, frankly, open streets advocates because police, I don't know, they, they love their cars. Um, so it, and, and just as a pure manpower issue, this just gives de Blasio an excuse over and over to say, well, if we can't put four cops at every corner and we have so many sick police, then I guess we just can't do this. And it's a very baffling idea that we have a ton of street fairs every summer, uh, that we, do things like summer streets uh, that you could just put a, a sawhorse uh, in at, at an intersection and some and say, you know, what like somebody's just going to plow their car through it. Beyond the fact that it's not happening in the other places where this is going on, it's a very strange idea that somebody thinks that, that, that the city leadership uh, seems to think that if you put a sawhorse at the end of a block, car can't go there, that somebody's just going to plow through it at 50 miles an hour uh, as if it wasn't there. Well, so this is a this is a pretty unprecedented crisis, and often these types of uh, something like this would generate some kind of creativity or ingenuity, and it doesn't seem like that's happening when it comes to cyclist safety, pedestrian safety, uh, open streets initiatives. The city council has been talking about 
adding 75 miles of it, it soon, right? Could you talk about that a bit? Uh, the, the hearing on Friday at City Council was about their plan to open 75 miles of streets. Uh, it's not just bike lanes. It's a it's it's their their bill is very short and to the point, and it says we're directing the Department of Transportation to to come up with a plan to open 75 miles of streets uh, to pedestrians and cyclists. Um, and that could mean things like slow streets, uh, where cars are limited to, a car's trucks are limited to five miles an hour. That could mean saying a car is banned from a street entirely. It could mean that, you know, through traffic and deliveries are allowed, uh, or rather local traffic, not through traffic. Local traffic and deliveries are allowed, um, but that's it. It was, it was a very, very disappointing hearing because the DOT showed up, uh, immediately said, you have to listen to the NYPD first. And the person who was there representing the NYPD said, we can't do it because we want to put a cop on every corner and we don't have enough police for that. And then the DOT just kind of repeated it. It can be complicated and, and it requires creativity and it requires thought, but New York City's government, um, or I should say the DeBuzzer administration, between the mayor and between the DOT commissioner, are just showing a complete lack of creativity in all of this. And it's, you know, it's like, it's disappointing. We made the first protected, parking protected bike lane in America, uh, and now we've gotten to the point where we can't do a thing that people are doing all over the country. Well, so I want to I want to shift a little because we we only have a little bit of time left. But you you mentioned disappointing disappointment, and that kind of is a nice segue to uh, another topic. Uh, you're a big Mets fan, so am I. The Mets have had Nelson Doubleday and Fred Wilpon as owners in the past, and so now they have Fred and his son Jeff Wilpon as owners. But it looks like there might be a new power couple purchasing the team, and that's Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez, J Lo and A Rod. What do you think of that? I love it, dude. I mean, I love it. Any anyone who buys a sports franchise, obviously, um, is kind of a, a, an evil, wealthy weirdo to to one degree or another. But with Steve Cohen, uh, the guy who also has been in the running to buy the Mets, uh, Mets fans kind of had to we had to be like, do we want like this horrible family of Long Island real estate vultures that own uh, the Mets, or do we want this? terrible hedge fund guy uh, who paid the largest insider trading fine in uh, American history uh, to, to own the Mets. So if it's A-Rod, I mean, I'll take A-Rod. What is it? The guy, the guy just cheated to win baseball games. I guess that that's kind of the cool thing to do. He was, he was ahead of his time because the Astros I, done it as a, uh, a coordinated effort, the Red Sox. I think it's funny how the Mets can be the only team to finish below 500 and still get uh, entwined in this cheating scandal because oh. Beltron got was manager for about 21 days or something. Yeah. Just a few more a few more moments. I wanted to get your take on some movie and book recommendations for people during the uh, COVID-19 lockdown here. What are some sports movies that you enjoy? So, you know, I was thinking about this because you mentioned it to me earlier, and I was like, what sports movies are I like? Uh, Slapshot, obviously, is a uh, classic. If you haven't seen that, uh, you got to check that out. Uh, Paul Newman and hockey and hockey in the 70s when it was especially a weird sport that nobody quite understood. 
I, I think I've done more books uh, that, I, that I've read that I like. I mean, you know, uh, classic is uh, Bad Guy. The Bad Guys One, which is the story of the 86 Mets. I got to say that's on my list, and that's also on our other guest, Radford William Davis's list for bets best sports book so oh just just an incredible book um and i'll even be a little ecclesiastical and uh, mention that there's a great yankees book uh, ladies and gentlemen the bronx is burning <laughs> another good one and then also if you can somehow find a copy of can anyone here play this game the uh, jimmy breslin story of the 1962 mets mm. one of the funniest books i've ever read about baseball we got to wrap it up but it was great having you on the show thank you for talking with us about bike safety about potential new Mets ownership power couple and your movie and book recommendations. We'll talk.